0: So it's wonderful to see your shining faces again as we open up God's Word together. We are in the incredibly practical little book of James. We're learning from our spiritual brother what it means to walk in the newness of life that Jesus makes available for us. But thinking about last Sunday, I feel like I've deceived you. I feel like I need to come clean before we go any further because I have been party. To a lie, I have been partner in falsehood, and the truth must come to the light. I keep saying that this little book is called James, and that the man who wrote it is also named James. Fun historical fact, that's not his name. If you read the New Testament in his original Greek, you can clearly see that Jesus' br- half-brother, the biological son of Mary and Joseph, is named Jacob. Also, are all the apostles named James? They're all Jacobs, named after the patriarch of Israel. And true, James is, you know, related to Jacob in the same way that Ned is related to Edward, and you can call a Richard Dickie, though ask them first. They might not like that. But in the Greek New Testament, we never see James, we only see Yaakobos which is the Greek word for the Hebrew word, Yaakov, which is Jacob. So why do we know all these guys as James? Well, I blame the king. Remember the most famous English translation of the Bible is the King James Version. It was financed and commissioned by the English monarch James I. So this switch from Jacob to James, which is an acceptable alternative, seems to be in part the translator's homage to their patron. They honor the man who wrote the checks by literally writing his name into the story. He gets a cameo in his own translation, and sure, it's mostly harmless, uh, but it does obscure these guys' Jewish heritage. So, I just wanted to get that off my chest. Justice for Jacob, the man's name is Jacob. And I'm gonna call him James for the rest of the series, because it's too confusing. But I needed to get that out. But now back to the meat of things. Last week we chewed on what was just three verses. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Here were our discoveries. And I apologize, I didn't realize how much trials and tribulations it would be for Washington sports fans this week. With the loss of the national title game, the retirement of Pete Carroll, and my Green Bay Packers taking the last playoff spot from the Seattle Seahawks. So God in his grace had us in this passage. Consider all your trials a joy. But, here's what we discovered. Following Jesus does not shelter you from experiencing adversity. Christians will face difficulties, but we do not face them alone. Also, we discovered that James is not instructing us in how we should feel, but rather how we should think when it comes to encountering trying circumstances. To consider something a great joy does not mean to manufacture happiness. It means choosing trust and hope. Indeed, we were kind of able to articulate a biblical definition for joy. In Scripture, joy is a sense of well-being and a settled contentment that is rooted not in one's situation, but in one's choice to trust God, that he's good, and that he will fulfill His promises. And then James helped us discern a redemptive purpose in the challenges we face. He said trials serve to prove and temper our faith and cultivate within us a joyful endurance. And endurance forms us into the whole integrated Christ embodying people that God intends for us to be that's where we stopped last week. But James goes on in verse 5. Now if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to Him. If you want to experience the newness of life that Jesus makes available to us, a Christ follower must exercise joyful endurance But James knows we come to this task lacking. That's our first fill-in on our sermon notes. We come to this task lacking. A few months back, I heard an interview with the biographer of Tim Keller. Tim Keller was a Christian author. He was a New York City pastor who died in 2023 of pancreatic cancer. He was a wise teacher, a winsome apologist, and um, my connection to him is he was an alumni of the same campus ministry, University Christian Fellowship, that I served with as a missionary. Now, when Tim was first approached about planting a church in Manhattan, which is a place of celebrity and power and wealth that's notoriously hostile to the gospel, his biographer re- repeated this little tidbit. Keller expressed one serious concern he said i don't know if my prayer life is strong enough he knew he approached the assignment lacking but he was confident that god's wisdom and grace could supply what was ever would be needed to represent christ well in the city yet he had that real concern he knew what was necessary but he also knew himself He knew his own pride, his own self-will, his own fear. Would he have the discipline and the humility to ask the Lord? And would he have the resolve to trust God's answers? In difficult assignments, we lack the perspective sometimes, the desire, the strength, even the practical know-how of how to proceed forward in the way of Jesus. And in our lack, we're not called to muster more tenacity or creativity. We're beckoned to pray, to ask God for his wisdom. There's a great line from a biblical scholar named Sophie Laws. She writes this, This one lack, this is one lack that cannot be made up by human effort, for it is a gift of God and must therefore be asked of Him. In the hour of trial, even our lack is a gift. In Christ, we're destined for wholeness and spiritual maturity, but what it takes to reach that destination is not a solution to our immediate problem, but training in Christ's thinking, His patience, His power, His way. We need God's wisdom. It's the only way we can discern and carry out God's will. It's the only way we can grow in fortitude and godliness. But let's be honest, sometimes we have no interest in God's wisdom. We only want God's rescue. We expect God to be the ultimate helicopter parent. Hover around me and ensure I never encounter hardship. Moreover, you know, um, rescue me immediately from anything that is painful or or challenging. And while you're at it, could you curate for me the stimulating, um, pleasurable existence that will leave me satisfied and entertained. But helicopter parents do a disservice to their kids. Kids coddled like this tend to be grow up to be self-focused, if not self-obsessed. Moreover, these kids hit adulthood, stunted. They've never cultivated the internal resources that are required to persevere through difficulty to endure resistance. A rude awakening is in store. And what's worse, they're ill-equipped to do anything meaningful because anything meaningful is also hard. But our God is not a helicopter parent. He is a good, engaged Father who shepherds us in love. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You see, the Lord seeks our growth, not our harm, while he also remains present with us through every trial. Notice here what James reveals about God's character. While God doesn't always shelter us from adversity, He is single-minded in His intent to show us good and to share with us His insight and resources. He gives generously, wholehearted in His devotion to us. He also gives ungrudgingly without finding fault. Not that there's no fault to find, we may very well have contributed to the difficulty that we experience. We may be slogging through a mess of our own making, but the moment we turn to God and we ask for His guidance, He shows grace. He gives us what we do not deserve, and for that, we praise Him. You know, my flesh often wants to say, okay, go pound salt, buddy. You made your bed. Now lie in it. Suffer the consequences of your actions. But God, in contrast, gives wisdom generously and ungrudgingly. Ungrudgingly. He says, Follow me, my child, and as you reorient on my voice, let me lead you into life and wholeness. You see, James wants to reassure us: God's not stingy, he's not mad at you. And he won't give you garbage or danger just to build your character. I read a memoir of a young woman this past year who worked in government. And she had a pretty messed up relationship with her dad. And one day, uh, on one birthday when she was an adult, she got a message from her estranged father that he had swung by her place and left her a birthday present. And when she got there, with a little fear and trembling, she hadn't seen her pops for years, she found a gift wrapped in aluminum foil with a handwritten note that said, Never forget you are a warrior. And it was two recently harvested, still bleeding elk hearts. This father had clearly wanted to unsettle his daughter, and the only gift he had for her after years of ignoring her was to bring something ugly and threatening into her life for the sole purpose of toughening her up. Sadly, this is how some people view God. But James needs us to know that nothing could be further from the truth. Our Heavenly Father is all giving and goodness and grace. And James ends our section with these words in verses 16 through 18. Do not be deceived, My dear brothers and sisters, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. By his own choice, he gave us birth by the word of truth, so that we would be kind of a first fruits of his creatures. Everything good, whole, and beautiful in your life comes from the Lord whether you recognize Him as its source or not. Our God is a giver. He's a giver. That's a fundamental aspect of His character, and His character does not change. He's not capricious or temperamental. He's faithful even when we are faithless. He's sure and steady forever. You see, it was God's love that conceived us God's love that preserves us God's love that sent Jesus to rescue us it's God's love that makes us new that makes us the first evidence of God's restoration of all things so confident now in God's character let's listen again to James's charge to us in verses 5 through 7 or 5 through 8 Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting, for the doubter is like the surging sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all his ways." So, what does it mean to ask in faith without doubting? And in what ways are we tempted to be double minded towards God's wisdom? I don't believe James is saying that a Christian must never ever wrestle with doubt. The Psalms are full of prayers where David is struggling through his fear and his uncertainty before the Lord. And God is big enough to handle these dark nights of the soul. He knows we are but dust, and he is not scandalized by our human frailty. Indeed, one of my favorite prayers in all of Scripture is the cry of a desperate father to Jesus, and he receives it. I do believe. Help my unbelief. See, James is actually talking about something more endemic. One scholar puts it this way, our asking for wisdom must coincide with the way in which God gives. He gives with singleness of intent. We must ask with singleness of intent. James wants us to understand that God responds to us only when our lives reflect a basic consistency of purpose and intent, a spiritual integrity. James says, don't be like the surging sea. The unstable open ocean that is all movement and frenetic energy, but no pattern, no rhythm. A commentary puts it this way. The picture here is not of a wave mounting in height and crashing to the shore, but a swell of the sea never having the same texture and shape from one moment, but always changing with the variations in wind direction and strength. He sets up this incredible contrast. God is stable, He's faithful, He's unchanging, but the one who doubts and is double minded towards God's wisdom has no anchor to hold them in the storm. They're chaotic, wavering, unreliable, tossed about by their circumstances. Their conduct, their values, even their core convictions shift with each strong gust of wind. See, one of the most profound things that anyone has ever said to me was this. Ryan, I never trust a man who wears both a belt and suspenders, which is why I am in suspenders. It is a visual picture here. And the speaker was a man named Neil Harrell. He was a grizzled Methodist pastor from a rural California farming community. And last week you had a chance to meet one of my best friends, Russell Johnston, who's a pastor in California, was out visiting with us. My other best friend is a pastor, I don't know why all my best friends are now pastors, but they are, is a pastor out in Michigan. And his dad uh, is Neil. We were good friends from college. I've spent a lot of time with his family. Uh, and his father was this lar- He is this large Lithuanian man with a big heart and a sharp playful tongue. He's also a very proud country bumpkin. And I've almost never seen him in anything but a white t-shirt and blue denim overalls. One day I went to his church, I visited, and he had his clerical robes on, and at the end of the service he tore them off, and there it was, white t-shirt, blue denim overalls. And he always enjoyed teasing me mercilessly for being a soft suburbanite from the San Francisco Bay Area. Which, full disclosure, I am a soft suburbanite from the San Francisco Bay Area. But one day, uh, I had to buy suspenders because I was a groomsman in a wedding, and I decided to wear them to his house. I don't know, to adapt to his culture or something. Uh, And apparently, I did it wrong. Ryan, never trust a man who wears both belt and and suspenders. He is double-minded, unstable in all he does. You claim to be a man of faith, but you won't even trust your own suspenders to hold up your pants. You have to hedge your, belt, your bets and help with a belt. What I see right now, Ryan, is an unsteadiness in your character, a fatal flaw in your internal makeup that casts doubt upon whether you can be relied upon for anything. You have a divided soul, Ryan, right? And a divided soul will render you useless for God's kingdom. That was 12 years ago. This is the first day I've worn suspenders since. I was so traumatized. But look, no belt. <sighs> Neo makes a great... A man who wears a belt and suspenders trusts neither. He vacillates between two opinions. He's noncommittal and confident in nothing. Sadly, this is too often the way of things for Christians. We, We know too much, but not enough. We know too much about life's difficulty, too much about our weakness and need, too much about God's love and power to attempt to face life without Him. We can't just embrace the way of the world and its wisdom because we have seen, if not experienced, the wreckage of that path. Raw self-interest and materialism, it's futile and empty. Yet we don't know enough about God's heart and character, and I don't mean intellectually, I mean no internal belief know in your soul to sometimes fully entrust ourselves to his care or maybe we're just fairly certain that at the end of the day what we may want is not actually what God wants we want rescue not maturity we want our will not his not the world made new under his leadership but the world made free of our need for God So many of us pray like this. It's not, God, draw near. Teach me to trust and depend on You. Train me to walk in Your way and Your power. Instead, we pray, God, change my situation. Restore my circumstances so I no longer have to bother You or bother with You. This is what it looks like to be double-minded. To have a soul divided between both faith and the world, to wear both a belt and and suspenders. It's having a form of godliness but denying its power. It's wavering between competing allegiances and forever remaining a spiritual baby that has never progressed from milk to solid food. What does Jesus say is the greatest commandment? You love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all Your mind. And failing to do so will leave you tossed about, unsteady, unreliable, consistently inconsistent. And one scholar puts it this way such people may not be willfully rebellious, but they are often unwilling to commit to anything and thus prove unreliable. One cannot necessarily depend on them. These are people who are unwilling to let go of the world and truly follow Christ, torn between sin and obedience, reluctant to let go of the pleasures of the world for the sake of discipleship. Nominal Christians who attend church from time to time, perhaps even regularly, but who refuse to let God interfere with their daily lives and goals. If you feel tossed about battered by circumstances, not having an anchor in the storm, not making progress in your life of faith. It might not be that you don't know enough. It might be that we haven't gone all in to trusting Him. So what's our course correction? Number one, recognize your desperate need for God's wisdom. Wisdom. James says. You require insight and resources and power that are beyond you to live the life that He's called you. Recognize that need. Number two, repent and reorient on who you are trusting for the answers to your questions. The whom is more important than the what.
1: Proverbs says, The Lord...
0: The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. True wisdom begins with a healthy awe and respect for God. It begins with acknowledging God and following God who is now revealed to us in Jesus. So recognize your desperate need. Repent and reorient on God who is the answer to our questions. And then pray and drop anchor, shut up, and shut out, and then ask for wisdom. You might not know this about me, uh, but I have it sometimes find it hard to pray because I am enthralled with talking. Maybe you are the same way. We tell God and others about all of our problems, then we tell God all the things that need to be done in our lives and in the lives of others because of those problems, we tell him what we want to see happen, what we need him to orchestrate and accomplish. And I, then we hang up the phone. Click. It reminds me of one particularly beloved family member of mine that I know if I answer, I need to have an hour. And I also know that I can just put them on speaker and put myself on mute because there's no point for me to get a word in edgewise. It is not necessary to keep the conversation going. Now. Now. Don't get me wrong. I, we live far away now. I love catching up. I love it. Uh, but are our conversations with the Lord like this? Right? Do we leave him on mute, boy, monologue for about five minutes, and then hang up? <sighs> These days, my prayers begin more and more with shutting up and shutting down out. I know my father loves to hear my prayers as I process through things with him. He doesn't begrudge our conversations, nor does he view me as like frivolously bending his ear. I'm not hesitant to speak, but I recognize that the understanding I require won't reside in the words that come out of my mouth, but the words that come out of his. That's why I also have to silence And shut out, for a time, other voices as well. I like talking in all its forms. It doesn't have to be my talking. And there are lots of very well-meaning people that peddle wisdom, and I love to learn and to listen, but I need to tune my ears to God's voice first and foremost, because there's times that those other voices are sirens' songs. know as well what you're asking for when you pray. Uh, Fenton Hort, who is an old Irish theologian, defines wisdom as the endowment of heart and mind which is needed for the right conduct of life. You're not searching for answers or solutions or even a revelation of how exactly God is going to move in your situation, how He's going to resolve the crisis. You don't necessarily need that. What we need is the faith to persist in trusting God to see us through and the practical insight of how to put one foot in front of the other in our next situation that manifests what we're depending on, that manifests the way of life that God has trained us in, that manifests that faithful endurance, and that godly living. You see, God desires in us a humble and contrite heart, a teachable spirit, and that's what he can work with. A person like that, he can lead through the tumultuous sea, and he can drop an anchor for in times of storm. So recognize your desperate need, repent and reorient on who our wisdom comes from, Pray and drop anchor, and then obey what he says without hesitation or hedging. I stumbled upon this incredible little quote from a missionary named Elizabeth Elliot. Some of you know her quite well. She says, This does it make sense to pray for guidance about the future if we're not obeying the thing that lies before us today. How many momentous events in Scripture depended on those persons on one person's seemingly small act of obedience. Rest assured, do what God tells you to do now, and depend upon it, you will be shown what to do next. In Scripture, wisdom is inseparable from our allegiance to God. So to love and follow Jesus means to hold unswervingly to him in loyalty and to do what he says the apostle john says this for this is what the love for this is what love for god is to keep his commands and his commands are not a burden because everyone who has been born of god conquers the world you ask god for wisdom good now obey what he commands without hesitation or hedging this is not a burden this is how He shapes us and how He demonstrates His power. Yes, God may not have told you how to resolve the crisis that you're going through. He's not, maybe not revealed how He's going to provide in this hour of trial. But He may have informed you how to navigate tomorrow. How to work through that next interaction. How to show up as a man or woman of God right now so do that take off the belt and trust the suspenders for he who proves faithful with little will be entrusted with much and those who respond in faith to what god has said god grants even more wisdom so what is your next step of obedience or maybe a better question, what does it look like for you to take off the belt? What has caused you to be double-minded, the thing that you are not letting go of because you're afraid that if you let go and trust God, it won't be enough? James says we are double-minded when we do that. And we don't tap into the amazing power and resources that God makes available to us to live in this life as his people. So we're going to end there. I pray that you would have faith, that you would find power, that you would find your anchor in the storm. Dear God, we come before you this morning as the worship team comes up. God, and we are so grateful that you are actually a God who speaks. You speak through your word. You speak through your church. You speak through that still, small voice. And You might not always give us the information that we demand of You in the moment that we demand it, but You are a God who gives generously and ungrudgingly. God, You give us what we need to live in that newness of life that You've made available to us. To walk in a life that lives out the reality that You have defeated evil, sin, and death, and You are making things, all things, even us, even this world, new, of a different character, nature, quality entirely, life abundant. That is all available to us, but we have to trust You. We have to ask. We have to choose to trust You and not anything else. God, take our divided heart and make it whole. We love you and trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.